You've got questions, and wouldn't you know it, we've got answers. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. It's Tuesday. Uh, I'm Matt Copenheffer. This here is David Hansen. Uh, as always, the show is brought to you by The Motley Fool. And you can get a special report from The Motley Fool by emailing Warren at Fool.com. That's Warren Buffett's first name, Warren at Fool.com. You'll get a special report detailing Warren Buffett's greatest wisdom. I'm writing that down. I'm gonna Better. Get, I'm going to get that report. You need that wisdom. I need it. <laughs> All right. So we've, we've got a special show today, David. But before we get to that, we're coming up on, if you can believe it, the 100th show here at Where the Money Is. And we're, we're going to have a contest. We're going to have a little bit of a contest here or a random drawing, I guess we could say. We, con- we want our, our WTMIRs to contact us. You can contact us through Twitter, at TMF Financials on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook, uh, Motley Fool Financial Services. You can also email us, WTMI at Fool.com. Go through one of those channels. Tell us the one thing you love the most about where the money is. Mm-hmm. And then we'll uh, get a fishbowl on the show and randomly pick a name. And uh, that lucky winner will get a WTMI sweatshirt. That is unbelievable. What, it, it is unbelievable. You can't beat what, that prize. You, can't, you can't, literally can't beat that prize. You also can't get that sweatshirt anywhere. So email, Facebook, Twitter, Carrier Pigeon, if possible. They, Car- know, yeah. they know our address. You, get, get, you get two entries in the fishbowl if you send it by Carrier Pigeon. Done. All right, we do have a special show today. It's an all-questions show. And actually, we're going to ask a fool questions. So these come from the Motley Fool's main Facebook page. Uh, but they pertain to financials. So we're bringing them here to the WTMI uh, what do you want to call it? Arena. Family. Family, arena. I was going to say arena because that sounds like intimidating. It's like battling. All right, uh, the first question we have here is uh, it comes from Jerome Tibbles. And the question is Will interest on savings accounts ever rise? What can you put money into that will beat the banks? My answer yes, it will rise. Eventually. <laughs> I think so. Maybe. Yeah, I think um, so. Probably will. Uh, I, I was looking back to. 2005, I saw a five-year CD, so it locks up your money for five years, mm-hmm. but that was paying over 4%, which if you think about that now, that's unbelievable. A five-year CD now is probably paying a couple basis points. Nothing. Opposite of cashing in. Um, so like it, it'll probably, it probably will go up. We look at, you can look at to the short-term interest rates that the Fed tries to aim to get, get us where we are. Um, they're keeping those low to spur people to go out and spend money rather than keeping it in the bank. They want people to go out and spend money, spur the economy to grow. So that's what's why they're low they for now. What are they spending money on? What are they low? What are they spending it on? Yeah, everything. Nice clothes, nice sweaters, nice leggers. sweaters, cars. Look at that sweater. You should be on a. Thank you should you. be on a boat in what do, that what sweater. What do you think? How can we, how can we beat the banks? Uh, look, I I think eventually the the rates on on savings will go up. Uh, in terms of beating the banks, I mean, you can go out there and look for the banks that pay higher than mm-hmm. average interest rates. Uh, Bank of the Internet is one that we uh, – it, it's, it's a stock that we talk about a lot on this show. But from a consumer perspective, it is a bank that pays more to its customers than everywhere else. But I think what, what uh, bank customers need to be thinking about is what is the purpose of that money? If the main purpose is for liquidity, then you want to worry about the liquidity. And you may not be getting a whole bunch of yield for keeping your money in liquid accounts right now. But if liquidity is the important thing, then that's, where, that's what mm-hmm. you've got to do. So if, if we're talking about, oh, we well, can go to bonds, you can go to a dividend-paying stock, that sort of thing. You don't want to do that if that's money that you're going to need mm-hmm. uh, in the near term. The other thing I'll point out is that, yes, 
bank accounts, savings accounts are paying very little right now. But inflation is also very, very low. So we need to be thinking about what's the real return on the money. So let's say, for instance, that uh, banks are paying out 3% on a savings account. But if inflation is 4 or 5% on a real basis, and and I think when you're keeping ultra-liquid money, you've got to expect that you're not going to lose as much as keeping it in straight cash, mm-hmm. but you're going to lose some real value. Right. So, so if the bank may be paying 3%, but if inflation is 4 or 5%, you're still losing some real value. Mm-hmm. Right now, bank accounts are paying very little, but inflation is very low. So the real amount that, that you're losing or the real amount mm-hmm. that you're not getting is, is not drastically different than when banks were paying more in the past. Good so, point. Um, Good point. So I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm not as worried about trying to beat the banks. And in particular, I think uh, consumers should, should stay focused on what's the purpose of that money. I agree. Second question. Second question. This one comes from Margaret. She says, what is your thought on Wells Fargo? Does it have room to grow? Does it have good long-term prospect? You do not own Wells Fargo stock. I do not own Wells Fargo stock. Do you think it has long-term prospects here? I do. I do. I, I think it's a. I think it's the best managed of the four banks. Uh, you know how big of a fan I've been of Citigroup lately. I think that could be proved to be. I, I'm not going to say as well managed as uh, as Wells Fargo, but the management I think is improved at all of the big four banks. But Wells Fargo still the best run bank, I believe. Also the most expensive. In terms of growth, I think regulators are going to be. Very circumspect about any of these big four banks getting much bigger than they are. But when you think about the amount of money they earn at their current size, and that money can be returned to shareholders through dividends. That can be used to buy back shares of the bank. Um, so, so it's not just about does this, does this grow? Do deposits grow? Does the overall asset size grow drastically? Because you can grow a little bit but then you can also return a lot of capital that's coming out of this uh, ongoing business and return that to shareholders. Yeah, I think that's the important part. You don't, Wells Fargo is not going to go out and acquire any, another enormous bank to make it bank of itself bigger. That's not going to happen, <laughs> but they make very good returns on their money, and that money goes to shareholders. They pay 3-plus percent dividend there, that's real money. Or right around there. Uh, so, yeah, you want to look at Wells Fargo saying, how much are they growing their profits, how much is falling to the bottom line, and increasing that book value that shareholders really get there. I think the risk... To Wells Fargo is not necessarily it crumbling like a, an AIG or a, even a Citigroup did during the financial crisis, but maybe just that it doesn't achieve very good returns going forward. Uh, I mean, if you look at other bank stocks and you say, I think I can get 10% returns there, and Wells Fargo only, only returns 4% over the next couple of years, then it's maybe not a great deal. But I think it's a very well-run bank continue to generate good profits. So I think it does have a pretty bright future. Well, in terms of investing, the, the other thing I'll point out is in terms of investing in banks in general, one of the things I think we've, we've noted on the show before is as much as we are attracted to and like low valuations, over the long term with mm-hmm. banks, it's about who's, who's disciplined, who's making good loans, who's going to survive over the long term. Uh, and Wells Fargo, to date, has proven that it can do that. That doesn't mean that it necessarily will, so you've got you've to watch how the bank is managed and what it's mm-hmm. doing, but um, Wells Fargo has shown itself to be a bank that can uh, manage itself over the long term. Third question. Third question. We've got this one from Fraser Mackey. Uh, if the U.S. has a debt of $17 trillion, how can a rising stock market ever be anything more than a shuffling of deck chairs on the Titanic? So I think that $17 trillion number 
uh, it's very scary. It's a big number. It's a very big number. But it's easy to get tripped up on just focusing in on that number. And, and the first thing I'll point out is that when you think about where interest rates are right now, very, very low. They're rising, but they're still very, very low. So what the government has to pay out on that debt is very, very low in comparison to GDP. Right. We don't want to get too comfortable with that because as interest rates uh, rise, that makes servicing that $17 trillion in debt more difficult. But I do have a, a graph here that I think is, is a little bit helpful. This goes back to 1900. And the blue line there, that's the debt-to-GDP ratio. The red line there is year-over-year GDP growth. So if we look at, and for, for listeners, I'll, I'll try to talk through this as best I can. So between, call it 1917 and 1946, you've got this steadily rising, well, not steadily, but you've got this rising debt-to-GDP ratio that peaks at almost 120%. Uh, in the meantime, you have some very volatile year-over-year uh, -year GDP growth. Now, after 1946, you've got what I could call a steadily declining right. debt-to-GDP ratio, along with pretty attractive uh, growth rates and, and rising growth rates for year-over-year -year GDP. And then, starting in about 1977, you again start to see the debt-to-GDP ratio rising again. So the point here is that this isn't totally novel. We've been here before with a very high debt-to-GDP ratio. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that this time is the same as last time. And I'm not saying that this time is different than last time. But what I am saying is that we've had a high debt-to-GDP ratio. We've had a lot of debt in relation to the size of the economy, the size of the country. And when that started to come down, and it, well, first of all, it did come down. Mm -hmm. And when it started to come down, we were still able to grow the economy uh, at significant rates. And as we pointed out here before, um, in any given year, uh, GDP growth and a lot of other economic statistics don't necessarily dictate what the stock market is going to mm -hmm. do. But if you think about long term, if you've got a growing economy, if you've got a healthy economy, they can put up 3, 4, 5, and in that chart, 10% at times, year-over-year -year GDP growth. Over time, that's going to be good for the businesses. It's going to be good for the stock market. Yeah, that's my view. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And looking at, the, looking at the stock market, it's not necessarily a combination of outstanding U.S. debt and kind of where GDP sits. It's a combination of company profits and investor expectations in terms of where those co individual companies mm -hmm. are going. And when we think about the stock market, that's not really a thing, just the stock market. It's individual companies that are traded, publicly traded um, amongst investors. So you're looking at company profits. Where do I think those will go over the next five to ten years? That's what foolish investors should be doing rather than trying to say, well, if debt to GDP goes to 110, that means I should sell stocks. No. Start studying the companies, find companies that can grow profits over time and make good returns on their capital. One final point you made me think of by focusing on the individual companies, which is a good, good point there. A lot of companies that trade on the U.S. exchanges get a lot of their revenue outside of the U.S. So focusing on the U.S. economic mm -hmm. environment isn't – the U.S. economy has a big pull on the global economy. But still, you think about uh, a company like Aflac. Most of it, the majority of its business is in mm -hmm. Japan. Uh, you think about AIG and its international exposure. You think about Citigroup, just talking about that earlier – it's, it's business, it's, it's uh, competitive advantage. Is Over it's global, half of yeah, the revenue is it's global, um, It's global presence. So a lot of companies we think of as U.S. companies get more of, their, uh, more of their revenue, more of their activity from outside of the U.S. All right. Fourth question. 
Fourth question. This is an interesting one from Kieran McDonnell. He says, if AIB Bank in Ireland, that's allied Irish banks, is 99% owned by the state and almost valueless in piles and piles of debt, how can it, be, how can it have a market cap of greater than $100 billion? How is this possible? This is a pretty wonky situation. And, and I, I, like the, I like the almost valueless in piles and piles of debt. Uh, one of the interesting things, uh, I, I put up some stats on AIB. Non-performing loan ratio at AIB, at least according to Capital IQ, is 34%. It's ugly. 34%. By way of comparison, I think Wells Fargo is just a hair over 2%. Uh, there, a lot of the banks that, that are, are high, even higher quality than that, Bank of the Ozarks, uh, fra- mm-hmm. favorite of the show, comes to mind. Less than 1% non-performing loans at AIB, 34%. So how is it over $100 billion? Explain. Well, what I think is happening here is 99% of the shares are issued and owned by the government, as mentioned in that. So during the crisis, the government came in and said, we got to backstop you. And for that, we're basically, we're basically own the entire it. company. Yeah. So all those shares are not actively traded in the market. They're in the government's pocket. Mm-hmm. So you've got this very small sliver of shares that, that are actively trading. And I think what you have happening in those shares is a lot more speculation than a, than a good, clear, active market that's, mm-hmm. that's seeking the right value for this company and for these shares. So you've got day traders and you've got speculators. And then what you're having happen is that the, the price of those few shares that are out there trading is then applied to the total shares outstanding, in, including the, the overwhelming majority ownership by the government. And that's where you get to that market cap. Now, if the government started taking its, the shares that it owned, that 90, 99%, and started putting those out onto the marketplace in, in any uh, large increments, that's when the market would have to start saying, well, what are do these we really worth? Yeah, do we really believe that this is a, this is a $100 billion mm-hmm. bank? And I think at that point, that's where the rubber meets the road, and, and we'd find out that, no, this is not a bank worth anywhere near $100 billion. Yeah, and we have a— and we That's have a, my, my take, at least. We have a chart with the market cap and the stock price of AIB. Uh, there, there's the stock price there. It's basically down 99% over the last 10 years, while the market cap is not, not down— pretty. The market cap looks up. So the stock price is more of the story than the market cap. Uh, you're not, they're done. The investors who lost <laughs> their money, they're not getting it back. They're not recovering it here. Sadly. With uh, the market cap moving back up. Uh, so that's the situation. It's trading at like six times book value. So if anyone can show me a bank that is legitimately trading at six times book value, I'll be... 6.5. 6.5. It's just not possible. I mean, you'd have to make returns that are out of this world, and they're losing money right now. So it's kind of a, a wonky picture there. Yeah, I, that's, I, I feel pretty comfortable saying that I would not touch, I, I have no interest in touching those shares with, with your money. Mm-hmm. If you gave me your money, I wouldn't buy it with your money. There are other Irish banks as too, much that, as I that are not money. in such a sticky situation. So if you're interested in, in, the, in the area, uh, Bank of Ireland's in a little bit cleaner position. So there you go. Fifth and final question. This comes from David Hamm, and the question is, does Bitcoin have a better chance of hitting $100,000, or do you have a better chance of winning $100,000 from $1,000 worth of scratch-off tickets? David? Flex, flex that, uh, those probabilities. I know you did some probabilities. <laughs> I didn't. Um, but I think, I think the lottery tickets have a better shot really? of, getting, of getting you $100,000. However, if I was offered $1,000 of Bitcoin or... 
$1,000 of lottery tickets, uh-huh. I would absolutely take the Bitcoin because it has utility. I can use it. I can buy things with it. I can hold on to it for a while. The lottery tickets, they may just be worthless. I either get something or I don't. I know it's very slim odds. I think lottery would be a better chance, but I would much, much rather have the Bitcoin. Look, by, by, by saying that I think Bitcoin has a better chance of hitting $100,000, that may make me come off sounding like some kind of wild, overly optimistic Bitcoin bull, which I'm not. But I do think Bitcoin has the better chance here, uh, basically because the expected payout of most lottery tickets is in the negative 30 cents to negative 40 cents range. So basically you pay a dollar and you lose 40 cents. Yeah. So, so, so if you think about the, the possibility of turning $1,000 into $100,000 um, using scratch-off lottery tickets. Now, as, as, another, as another little exercise, I looked at the uh, New York City's $1 Take 5 ticket. And just for, for simplification, I, I, I looked at the top payout, which if, if I, was, I got correct information here, it's a 1 in 529,200 chance to pay out $5,555. Mm-hmm. So that's one, one win. For one win, one over 529,200. So you'd essentially have to win 18 times of, of, of your, your $1,000 of tickets. You'd have to win 18 times in order to get your $100,000. Right. Do you know what that probably wor- probability works out to? Probably like 50%. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what that probability works out to, but as best as I could tell going out into 30 decimal places, it looks pretty much like zero. Zero. Okay. So that's why I'm saying that I think Bitcoin has a better chance of hitting $100,000 because I just don't think you're going to turn $1,000 in scratch-off tickets into $100,000. But it's possible. Maybe. I-, I, think maybe I think maybe it's possible. It's like... If all of the, the probably the probability of all of the planets colliding tomorrow, all at the same time, I think all the continents coming back together was it Pangea? Pangea reuniting <laughs> Pangea within the next three business days. There you go. I, there's probably some probability of that happening. I think there's about the same. So you, you'd also rather have the Bitcoin? Oh, I'd, cer- I'd certainly rather have the Bitcoin. I, I I don't buy lottery tickets. I have no interest in lottery tickets, particularly scratch off tickets. Um, Bitcoin, on the other hand, like you said, there's, there is utility value. And like I've said before, that utility value can be in having a secure way to transfer funds, mm-hmm. not just in the this is a currency, which I'm not sold on yet. All right. Cool. Well, that's the, that's the five questions, mm-hmm. uh, and that's the show. Um, I will remind again, we've got that contest going on. Uh, we're on Twitter, at TMF Financials. We're on Facebook, Motley Fool Financial Services. Our email address is WTMI at fool.com. Contact us through one of those. Let us know your favorite thing about WTMI, and, uh, and you could be the winner of a WTMI sweatshirt. Cool. All right, that's the show for today. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This here is David Hansen. We'll see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.